0: We are moving along in this letter from Peter, and he is he, he's making it clear, the point that Jason emphasized with the kids this morning, that we we can't save ourselves, and we also cannot pursue holiness without relying on the Spirit of God within us, because any attempt at just trying to be good and do the right things is legalism without the Spirit. And so we have to trust the redemption of Jesus by his precious blood. Peter says that the Father gives power to Christians in this way as exiles, to not be conformed to the patterns of the world around them, to not be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. No doubt that these worldly ways of living... Peter says, are utterly futile. We talked about futility last week. The book of Ecclesiastes equates it to trying to catch the wind in your hands. You can't do it. It's ridiculous to try. Peter talked about fear last week a little bit. And I mentioned from Psalm 112 that a right fear of the Lord actually produces delight in the Lord's commandments. And delighting in his ways produces the right kind of fear of the Lord. I I just want to circle back to that idea, that topic of fear for just a minute, because I think there's a little bit more to be said that I didn't say last week. Now remember, as Peter is writing specifically this first book, he's doing so with the idea of continued hope for the Christian. You're going to see that theme of hope kind of nestled in all kinds of different places, and especially first Peter. Despite the refining fire, that the Lord brings his people through, despite some of the persecution that we receive from others, there's hope in Christ. There's hope in faith. And so it's kind of strange then, I I think, that he tells Christians to fear. He actually says, you you can look back, he says, conduct yourselves with fear during your time in exile here on earth. Conduct yourself, he's telling them to fear, and that seems a little strange to us. If I was to ask you to write a letter of encouragement to another church, maybe on the other side of the world, or maybe even just right here in our own county, there's a good chance you're probably not going to tell them to to fear. Right? That's not where our mind immediately goes. We probably wouldn't choose to talk to them about that. Because our culture says that fear is bad. All fear is bad. In fact, you've heard the phrase, the only thing to fear is fear itself. I don't know who said that, but I don't know that it's necessarily true. Biblically, anyway. Strangely, Peter doesn't tell us as Christians to abandon all fear. He doesn't say stuff it down, don't be afraid of anything. He actually just tells us to direct it someplace else. We are supposed to fear. We're supposed to fear God. First and foremost and always. Now stick with me for a minute. Because when we talk about fear and Christianity, a lot of times there's fear involved in evangelism, isn't there? And so I think part of what Peter is getting at here is that concept. Now, we've been reading 1 Peter under the idea that Christians are missionaries. You, as a believer, are a missionary in the world that you live. And so this ties into evangelism in this way. We have all kinds of fears when it comes to sharing our faith. right? Fear of being rejected. Maybe fear of being laughed at, fear of being treated differently, maybe even fear of losing a relationship, possibly even a job. We've all kind of seen some of those things become reality in our world today. Christianity is less and less popular. In fact, we're seen as more and more narrow-minded and unkind, unfortunately. Now, we've got a lot to do to make up for that kind of stigma. The Bible certainly tells us how to act right in the world today, and and Peter is kind of getting at that as himself here. Now, we are missionaries in the world today, but sharing our faith kind of creates some fear in us. I think, as what Peter is saying here, is the idea for Christians, for you guys, is not to just eliminate all fear, to just not be afraid of anything, but to reestablish the right kind of fear. Elliot Clark, in his book, evangelism as exiles asks some hard questions of us as Christians. I want to read some of these. They're in your notes. He says this, Is our failure to evangelize really an issue of fearing too much or not fearing nearly enough? Do we cherish our comfort and others' respect more than we cherish God's glory and their deliverance? Will we love them enough to fear for them? To show them mercy and kindness by warning them and snatching them out of the fire. The consistent testimony of the New Testament is that if we have the appropriate fear of them, I'm sorry, fear for them and of God, then we'll preach the gospel. We'll speak out and we won't be ashamed, he says. So biblically, according to scripture, a Christian should fear one thing, God. God. If we fear anything else, then our fear has not been directed properly. Jesus, I think, makes this clear in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 28. He had just told his followers that persecution was going to come here. It's going to happen. And then he says this, But have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, and this is what we're getting at today, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So again, Jesus himself isn't saying just don't be afraid of anything. He's saying be afraid of God. Because there's consequences if you don't. As we've seen throughout history and even in some places still today, and this may even be highlighted by the Olympics, mankind will try to stop the proclamation of the gospel by any means necessary. Sometimes the killing of the body. But only God, Jesus says, has the authority for what happens to a person's eternal soul. And Jesus is clear. God is the one who his followers should fear, not man. But oftentimes, if we're honest, we're silent about our faith because we are driven by a fear of man. And I'm afraid sometimes in the church, our churches even try to justify this fear of man through the pursuit of church growth. Elliot Clark, again, his words stung me as I read these things. He said, We've believed that the most effective witness for Christ is positive and encouraging. We've assumed the way to win the masses is by rebranding our churches and offering people a better life. We've believed our greatest apologists are successful CEOs or professional athletes. The gospel has become one-dimensional. It's all about accessing blessings without the need to avoid judgment. Christian, here is a heart-probing question to ask yourself this morning. Do I fear feeling embarrassed in front of my unbelieving friend more than I fear their eternal destruction? The answer to how, how we answer that question reveals what we actually fear. A right fear of God puts fear of everything else in the proper perspective and that's what I want us to understand before we move on in first peter this morning now i'll i didn't mean to step on toes and jump right at you this morning so let's let me back off for just a bit uh, my goal certainly isn't to condemn anyone my goal certainly is not to to guilt trip anybody but understanding the right kind of fear in our christian life is really key in a lot of ways And we need to understand it. It has an effect on us as believers. Now, Peter, if we get back into the text here, Peter, he has given Christians the reason why they should live under this proper fear of the Lord. He says, because they have been ransomed. They have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Nothing else, nothing else makes a person right before God. Romans 9.16 is a wonderful verse that helps us understand this. Paul says, biblical salvation does not depend on your desire. It doesn't even depend on your effort, but on God who has mercy. And in his mercy, he has offered Christ as your substitute. Understand that. Christ has offered his life for your life, his blood for your blood. Sin leads to death, but Jesus has ransomed the life of every believer with his blood. And that's what Peter has been getting at. Guys, Christians have been redeemed from sin by the blood of Christ so that they would go out and be missionaries who are more and more like him. That's what Peter has been saying so far. Now we move in to verses 20 and 21. Those are kind of our target text for the day. So read that with me and then we'll have a word of prayer. I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a text. What a thought that this has been the plan from before the foundation of the world. From before the calendar was ever even a thought in a human mind, Jesus' redemption was in the books. And so, Lord, may we walk out of this place with renewed love for you, appreciation for Christ, and passion to preach his name. In his name we pray. Amen. So we, we gotta hit this, this first word in verse 20. He was foreknown. That, that word means foreordained. I think the King James version says it means he was known before, foreknown before the foundation of the world. It has been God's design from eternity past. Before the creation of the world, that the lamb would be offered for mankind's redemption. That's what he's saying. For their ransom. The world and its history form but a tiny fragment of God's mighty works. And yet, for mankind, a plan so overflowing with love was included in the vision of God before human beings had ever existed. Before we started making homes in this world, they existed in God's mind from eternity past. This was the plan. Now, when we say that the sacrifice of Christ satisfied the wrath of God, I don't mean to just get your mind thinking about an angry God who's just pacing around heaven looking for somebody to punish. That's not the idea that I want you to, to get from that. That's not the picture that we have in Scripture of God. But it can be what pops into our own minds when we start, start start thinking about um the shedding of blood and satisfaction and these sorts of things. Maybe we get in a wrong understanding of God. So this just to be clear, this wasn't God's plan out of desperation where he saw down through the annals of time and saw that mankind was going to be full of wretches and he had to figure out a, a way to fi- fix it in just the last moment. This wasn't planned out of desperation. This wasn't, excuse the ironic term for the day, this wasn't God's Hail Mary. It was a dad joke. Thank you. Christ's willing sacrifice for the redemption of sinners was the plan from the beginning. This was in God's mind. From before we ever were born. 1800 commentator John Gill said, A savior was provided before sin was committed. And the method of man's recovery was settled before his ruin even took place. This was done without any regard to the works and merits of men, but is wholly owing to the free and sovereign grace of God. To his everlasting love, both to the redeemer and to the redeemed. This was God's plan. This was all established before the creation of the world. And and Peter says that this spotless lamb, to go on in verse 20, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I think we could kind of rephrase it and say it this way. Christ was revealed in the last days for your sake. For your sake. This squares, I think, too, with what Paul says back in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ was revealed. That's what the word made manifest means. He was revealed, made known at just the right time with the purpose of dying for those who weren't like God, who were ungodly. You guys have heard the term, uh, timing is everything, right? And they can be applied to a lot of things. I, I want to use it in the, in the realm of fashion. Because I know so much about that. Just ask my wife. You guys remember parachute pants? Hammer pants? I I debated putting a a picture on the screen, but I thought that would be too distracting. Hammer pants. These were kind of the late 80s, really 90s kind of a trend. I'm going to really call you out this morning. Raise your hand if you owned a pair of hammer pants. Yes. Thank you. Someone did it. Do you still have them by chance? That's a shame. Just imagine that we live in a world where those were never a thing. We'd like to imagine that, wouldn't we? Imagine that we live in a world where you've never seen or heard of those before, and imagine I came in today wearing them. That would be quite a sight. MC Hammer made these kind of pants popular. That's why I call them hammer pants. We could apply this to other realms of fashion. Bell bottom jeans. Those, when I was a teenager, they were the really, really wide leg jeans. I could fit my head in the bottom of the jean leg. Fashion comes and goes. And if you don't hit, if, if, you know, manufacturers and stylists don't hit at the right time, it ends up being like hammer pants. Just kind of ridiculousness and it doesn't really work. Timing is everything. It's, it, it, applies to clothing choices. It applies to trying to hit a baseball. Timing is everything. Even when maybe you say you met your spouse. Timing is everything. If you hadn't met them at just the right time, all of these things, this just, it, you need to have good timing. Well, who has better timing than the Lord? Who understand and knows from before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, Your ransom was timed perfectly. Paul says, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And not just that, in sovereign wisdom, the triune Godhead revealed Jesus Christ in your life for your sake at just the right time. Maybe some of you can remember the person, individual, who had a a hand in seeing you come to faith someone explained the gospel to you, someone preached the gospel to you, and you heard and were cut to the quick in your heart and repented and were gloriously saved, God uses those people at just the right times in our lives. I've often thought, especially as a younger kid, if if some the timing of some event in my life had just been changed by a day, or even by a few seconds, maybe you've narrowly avoided disaster, Just a few seconds different and your world would be different. At just the right time, God had this planned for your sake, for you. He came and he dwelt among us. In the whole timeline of history, Jesus came in the incarnation at just the right time. For your benefit, for your advantage, for the, for your good, Jesus at just the right time was crucified and buried and raised and exalted and revealed to you. This was the goal towards which God's wisdom has been moving since before even the world was made. And so Peter is not preaching some kind of new and updated message here. He's not trying to fill his churches. If you remember one of Peter's sermons, you know, made people fall asleep and fall out of the sill. Okay. He's not trying to preach some fancy new message to fill up the church. We're not supposed to either. Hebrews 1 makes it really clear that God's plan is fulfilled in Christ. What he has spoken, we now see and understand in Christ. The second verse of Hebrews 1 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. That's the revelation that we need to know. That's the revelation that we need to preach. So Peter's message and the message that we need to be sharing isn't new. It's actually older than time itself. I appreciate the contrasting and kind of subtle irony that Peter slips in here. I don't, maybe you might have missed it. Uh, the International Standard Version, I think, really highlights it. Let me read this verse in, in that version. It says, On the one hand, he was foreknown before the creation of the world. But on the other hand, he was revealed at the end of time for your sake. You see the, the irony, kind of the subtle f- kind of irony here? On one hand, he was known, this was all the plan from before the foundation of the world, but on the other hand, he was revealed at just the right time for you, for your sake. Peter says that Christ was revealed in these last times for your sake, and then he adds in verse 21, it is that through him, you are believers in God. So let me put it a simpler way. Every born-again Christian only believes in God through Jesus, because of Jesus, in John chapter ten, Jesus says that he is the gate in, through which every sheep must enter the fold. He also says he 's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, okay that 's John ten John eleven, this is right after Lazarus had died, but before he had risen him from the dead. Jesus says that He is the resurrection and life. He also goes on to say that everyone who believes in Him will never truly die. Next in John chapter 12, Jesus says that what He speaks, the words that He's saying, don't come from Him, they come from the Father. They're the Father's words. And then in John 14, Jesus says, this is familiar to you all probably, Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life no one gets goes to the father except through him peter agrees with this verse 21 of 1st peter 1 through him christians are believers in god if a person thinks that they can get to heaven without a real relationship with jesus they are sadly and completely mistaken they have been deceived And they need to understand the truth here. It's only through Jesus that a person can stand before God as judge and be accepted and be redeemed, be ransomed. So real, genuine biblical faith hinges on knowing Jesus. This is not news to most of you, hopefully to any of you. You understand that you must go through Jesus to get to God. This was designed by God from before the foundation of the world and God proves it. He proved that this was the case, that it can only be through Jesus by what verse 21 says next, by raising him from the dead and giving him glory. That's, that's how God proves it. So Peter is, he's pulling back the layers of misunderstanding that that often kind of filter in our minds. He's already affirmed that it was through the shedding of blood that Christians have been ransomed, right? The perfect, spotless Blood of the Lamb. This references the cross, doesn't it? That's where Jesus' blood was was spilled, if you will. That old rugged cross that we sing so often about. But now Peter goes to further include something in this. The empty tomb. Right? God has raised him from the dead. The sacrifice of a sinless person was good. And it was necessary. But if Christ had stayed in the grave, we would be without hope. Paul says it this way in First Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 19 of that chapter says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, well, we're of all people most to be pitied. You see, the the resurrection changes everything. And if a relationship with Jesus only changes us in this life alone, well, our eternity remains unaffected, and that just means that we're living lives now of just religiosity and not real faith. But Paul is insistent, and Peter is insistent here. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive glory to God. Verse 21, God raised him and did what? Gave him glory. Being raised to life meant that Jesus had accomplished something in the grave, right? He broke the chains and the bonds of sin. He conquered it. He overcame death itself. And in doing so, and this was Paul's Major point in 1 Corinthians 15. In doing that, he gave born again believers hope that the same thing would happen to them when they die. That they could be raised to life. This gives Jesus glory because it was the plan before the foundation of the world. Now I hope that you're sick of me saying that. This was the plan foreordained before the foundation of the world. Christ now sits at the right hand of God in victory, interceding for his people, for the saints as their high priest. But he does not just sit there stuck in the corner as an afterthought. He sits at the right hand of God on the throne as king. Philippians chapter 2 uses the same kind of language that Peter does here. It says, For your sake... He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The speaking of the glorified name of Jesus. You guys know this text. What was going to happen? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth would bow their knee. And their mouths, their tongues would confess that Jesus is indeed Lord And if you look at the end of verse 11 in Philippians 2, it says, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's interesting to me that Paul says it that way because Peter says the same kind of thing at the end of verse 21 in 1 Peter 1. So that your faith and hope are in God. Now if you kind of, let's take a step back, look at verse 20 and 21 again from that bigger, broader perspective, this is just one sentence that we're looking at this morning. Since it's the inspired word and perfect words of God, every phrase is important here, but I want us to just kind of take out the middle phrase for helping us understand the main point here. Let's bypass that middle clause and read it this way. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's that's the purpose of the initial couple of clauses here. Jesus' sacrifice causes sinners to have faith and hope in God. That's what Peter is getting at here, just like it was for the saints in the Old Testament. God is the final object of faith same God who was in Christ, the same God who raised him up from the dead. Now turn, if you will, to John chapter 12 with me. I'm going to go back and revisit one of those texts that I mentioned earlier when Jesus was saying he is certain things. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Look at verse 44 again. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus was and still is today directing people to the Father, isn't he? That, that was his whole point in this text. He's pointing them back to the Father, to God. Paul, I think, helps us here in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If the old has passed away, behold, the new has come All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you see the similarities between Peter and Paul here? They both say that when placing your trust in Jesus Christ as your redeemer as your savior you are effectively and realistically placing your faith in god god was reconciling the world to himself in christ that was the plan before the foundation of the world this in reality as it trickles down to us in 2022 this is fantastic news This is the best news that you could ever hear in Christ. God the Father, the righteous judge, reconciles sinners back to himself through Jesus, and then he does not count their sins against them. If you were on trial for a crime that you legitimately committed, and someone comes in and says, I will pay the price. I will spend the time in prison. I will cover their debt. How would you feel? Relieved. Incredibly grateful. Some might even say it would change your life. That you would go out and live differently based on this person's sacrifice. Imagine if someone came in and died in your place. You really don't have to imagine it because it's true. Jesus did that. He came and he reconciled sinners back to God by the shedding of his precious blood. This is the gospel. This is the the message that Peter was sharing. It was nothing new. Friends, it's still nothing new, but it's everything. It means everything. Despite your sin, despite your failure to live up to the moral law of God... Through belief in Jesus, God chooses to not count your sin against you. Jesus has come into the courtroom and paid your debt. You have been set free. As a righteous judge, God places your punishment on him and makes you into a new creation. Something totally new. What an incredible hope that Christians have that what God has started, he is faithful to complete, to finish. What incredible hope that we have that's directed at God and completed in Christ. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world. It was your redemption in Christ. And it can still be that way for you today. Let's pray. Oh God. In Christ, you make sinners new. You accomplished righteousness on their behalf and have given it to them. Not because they were so deserving. Not because they worked so hard. Lord, this, this was your plan before time began. Before sin ever entered into the equation. Our ransom was planned, was sure. And Christ willingly went and reconciled sinners back to a righteous God. And that still can be the case for people that are hearing this this morning that don't know you. And our hope and our prayer, Lord, as followers of Jesus, is to see many come to faith, not so that we can Uh, Get a big head and boast in anything, Lord, but so that Christ's name might be glorified, that He might be raised up just as He was from the, from the grave, Lord, He might be raised up in our hearts and our minds, set high above everything else. So Lord, the old, we're told, has passed away because of the ransom that we have in Jesus and the new has come. All of this isn't, is from God, is from you. And so, Lord, we're we're eternally grateful. I pray, Lord, as we think through this this morning, Lord, that you would be moving in our hearts and in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.